Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, uh, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Michael Taylor. How are you doing, Michael? Thank you very much, John. Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? No, I'm not too bad. Not too bad, thanks. Um, So, yeah, you've written a feature for us this week. And you've written this, we asked you to write this because because it's kind of something very different for the IC, Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, mainly because of what you do for a living, which is that that you make your money out of uh, of trading the stock market. Mm -hmm. And what we've we've done with the feature is we've tried to sort of get get an insight into into some of the the techniques you you employ uh, in your job, as it were. But um, to start with, give us a bit of background about yourself what, what is what is it you do tell us tell us what what uh, being a, a trader and full you know full-time trader and investor involves uh, well it's hard work <laughs> i'll tell you that yeah i think i think you um, told us earlier there's something like you, you spend 14 hours a day on yes yeah, probably i mean it, it doesn't feel so much like work because i enjoy it but i mean if you don't enjoy this job then i would say you probably would struggle because a lot of it is getting up early looking at the rns's because that's where you make, make your money if there's good news at seven o'clock well, everyone's got an hour to see it. And then at eight, you know, 10 to eight, you've got the auction. Eight o'clock, you've got the open. Uh, if that stock moves within half an hour, you've missed it. You know, 8.30, you might have missed a move. So things like that, staring at charts, filtering. I use SharePad to filter for highs, volume, lows, things like that. Anything that I can trade off, things going through key levels, accumulation, inside a buy-in that hasn't been disclosed but will pop up on volumes. So when you see price stable for a while uh, and volumes coming in, and this was something that we saw with practice recently, PhD is the epic, uh, you had a really flat base decline in volume and volatility, but you could see that there was clear accumulation going on because the buys were still coming through. So, so a lot of work goes goes into oh yeah into the yeah, trades a lot that, of work that yeah. you make. Um, so, so, how did you get into this? What 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 what, um, what got you into markets? Well, I've always been interested in the stock market, but it was around. I was quite lucky because I, my granddad Tesco shares that he inherited, and he'd left them. And within a couple of years, they'd gone down 30% or something. And this is when you had the discounters, so Aldi, Lidl, coming in, taking market share. And I said, Grandad, just sell them. You know, that's decent money there. You can go on a cruise, you can enjoy it. Um, and he wasn't really sure what to do with them. And then eventually he said, well, why don't you do it? So I was quite lucky because then I got a pot to manage. And I started with FTSE 350 companies, like a very rudimentary strategy of trying to risk 10% to make 20, but it was really slow and it wasn't ever going to make me, you know, a million anytime soon. I could have been doing that for a hundred years and because it was so slow. uh, So I needed to scale up. And what I did is I came back to penny stocks, funnily enough, because the moves in some of them were crazy. And in 2016 and 2017, the market was so frothy and things were just going up insanely well. And I'm quite lucky in that respect because I wouldn't have been able to do it today because the market's very different now to what it was like back then. What, what's changed? What's, what's going on now that, that makes it more um, difficult to, to employ that strategy? What makes it different is that I think there's a lot of hot money floating around when people do well and the market's really bullish and everything's really rosy. Since the past few years, especially October, Last year, we've seen a big downtrend in the AIM index, and a lot of the companies that I trade are on AIM because they're small to mid caps. Um, I don't really trade things over a billion. 
So we've got these small companies, the funding's drying up. Um, a lot of companies rely on placings to keep going and they have regular news flow to keep the price up until the next placing. Uh, but what we're seeing is a lot of them companies going down, placings being pulled, a lot of companies going bust. And I think, you know, if we think to the economy now, is it really doing so well? We've had so many profit warnings this year already. Uh, retail's not doing well. Casual dining's not doing well. There's not really a lot of sectors that are doing very well. So I think that's part of it. But will it turn around? Of course it will. It's just a time of waiting, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, penny shares is something that we don't cover a great deal in the magazine no. because because I mean, mainly because you know generally there isn't a great deal of quality. There. There's not. Um, There's no quality at all. That's why the penny <laughs> shares. Is there? Is there is there something that bothers you? I mean, you know, it sounds to me like you, you know, you, you can't, you are happy to take positions mm. in companies that that we wouldn't suggest, you know, buying and holding for the long term, but you can make money out of them. I'm happy to buy anything if it goes up. It doesn't matter um, if it sells cigarettes or bombs or you know if it's an outright fraud. If it, if it's going to go up, I'll buy it because <laughs> I mean, I just care about the P and L at the end of the day. So, 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 so what, what, what's giving you the clues that something might might do what you want it to do, what you'd hope it to do? Well, a lot of the time there'll be a catalyst. So, for example, if there's a company that's going to be drilling a huge exploration well, it's probably never going to strike and it's never going to make the millions that people think it's going to, but it's the story and that's what people buy. They buy in the story. Um, you never want to hold for the results on these things. You, you wrote something on that this week, didn't you, about, about trading stories? Uh, uh, I might have done. I th- I'm sure you did. I, 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 I did actually, on Twitter. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you're right, I did. Uh, story stocks. Yeah. Story stocks, yeah. Yeah, so for example, you buy, wait for the people to arrive, and then you sell into that liquidity. And there's various technology stocks, not going to mention them because people might get annoyed, but there's a lot of companies that are very richly valued. And when you strip them back, it's pretty much just a story. But that's what people buy. I mean, you've got to think that in the small to mid-cap space, people aren't investors. They're not looking at the discounted cash flows. They're not working out the IRR and the NPV projects. They're not even looking at the balance sheet. A lot of these people don't even know what a balance sheet is. But you don't need to to make money because if you buy it to start the story, then you can make money. And really, that, that is what matters to me as a trader. I just want to make money. Yeah. Are there, are there any sectors that you, you favour at the moment? Tech is always really good because everyone loves tech and tech has historically done very well. And it's a great story. And it's a great story, <laughs> yeah. But it, very often it's high margin and that's what excites people. I mean, if you're buying well, something... it can be high margin if, uh, well, like, at the latest stage. I mean, of, uh, that, that, that's the story. It's always high margin. It's going to get the story. There, Yeah. I mean, whether it actually gets there is, is somewhat different. But if you look at construction, we've got T. Clark operating margins of 3%. I mean, it's it's just not that exciting. Is it a good company? Maybe. I, I don't really know. I'm not a fundamental analyst. That's not my strength. What I'm good at is looking at charts and trying to find a good risk-to-reward trade. So it doesn't really matter what the business does. What matters is the chart because a company can be you know, hugely undervalued But then if it drops another 30%, I'm 30% down, which, as we can see in the getting back to break even chart, you've got to make like 50% 
to get back to where you were. Yeah, let's, let's talk about you the can't feature. fight those numbers. Let's talk about can't. the feature. As I say, it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting piece. And it's looking at, uh, at something called position sizing. So this is basically mm-hmm. deciding how big a position you should take in a particular investment. And I, and I guess that should always be done in relation to uh, the size of your trading accounts or indeed the, the size of your portfolio as a whole. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, talk, talk us through kind of the, the kind of the high level principle behind, behind this and, and how, how you put it to use. Well, the goal of position sizing really is, is to protect your portfolio. If you put 30% of your capital into a company and then something like patisserie Valerie happens, well, that's 100% loss and you're down 30%. So you never, I mean, a lot of people said they could see that coming. Personally, I don't think they could because I looked back to see what they were telling is going to be another shot from now on. But of course, you know, there's always a lot of Harry hindsight. But if that does happen and you've only got 5 to 10% in, well, it's not the end of the world. So you can, the goal of position sizing really is to protect against the risks that you can't really defend yourself from. Because when that RNS came out, there's no out. You know, it went to zero pence. Everyone lost all the money. Nothing anyone could do. So. What what I mean to say is with position sizing, not only can you protect yourself against 100% loss, but you can also adjust your position size for the risk that you want to take on a trade. And what I mean by that is if you just have a generic 10% stop on a stock, well, what if support is 15% away? You're probably going to get stopped out, so it's not really ideal what you should do, or what, what I do, is adjust the position size. So maybe bring that position size down, keep the same amount of risk, but now you can take a further drawdown in percentage terms on the trade, and it gives you a higher probability of staying in the position. So it just gives you a little bit more downside that you can absorb, which, which means that in, in, in shares where the price is likely to be volatile, which, which yeah. some of these penny shares yeah, are, exactly. that, that's exactly where you want to be. Yeah. I mean, it's even with, with larger companies, very often when you see a support level, you'll often see the price go through that level, flush out all the people who've put the stop just below that level, and it'll spike back up again. Explain to us what you mean by a support level, because I'm not, I'm not sure all of our okay. listeners will be, will be au fait with, with all of the trading terminology. Yeah. So, for example, you've got a stock, 100 pence is the support level. Now, obviously, if you... And, and that's, that's essentially, how do you see a support level? How would you, how would you work it out It tends to be, you can see it on the chart, where a support level is where people are continuously coming in and buying that stock. And how does it, what does it look like on a chart? Uh, so it will bounce off around 100. So you can draw, essentially draw a line. Yeah, where, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you've got charting software, you can pick out these points. And obviously, the more times it hits that support level, the more significant that the support is. So if one day that stock then breaks through that level, well, that's the price telling you that something has changed and there might be a new trend. And you can trade that, but you've got to know where the levels are to be able to see them. So, for example, if we have a support level at 100, you put your stop at 100, probably going to get stopped out. If you yeah. put it at 99, 98, probably going to get stopped out. And when you say stopped out, yeah, you mean basically it's going to, a trade will be automatically executed that yeah. sells your holding. Yeah, because the price goes where the liquidity is. Yeah. And if there's a lot of liquidity at 98, 99, which there will be, it'll get stopped out. So... But you don't want to put your stop so far away that you're away from the price completely. So if we imagine that we put it at 94.95, we're just out of position. So we're away from the stop loss liquidity, 
and we've got a chance of staying in that trade and potentially making money without taking on the extra risk, which is, is the goal of position sizing. So you position size for the risk that you're taking on the trade. I mean, liquidity is uh, something you also mentioned uh, elsewhere did. in the feature. And I, th- I think this is a really interesting point. And this is, this is really to do with, with kind of how, how actively traded a particular share is in the market and, mm-hmm. and, and how that can determine what sort of size of a position you take. You talk us through what, what you mean here. It's, this is a figure we often have in our magazine, the normal market size. Yeah. And I, and I guess it, it'd be useful to explain why that figure is really important you're deciding how much of a share to buy. Normal market size is quite important and because of the the new best execution rules, which is ironic because it actually makes it harder to execute. So for example, if we've got NMS at 5k shares, now if you only hold 4,500 shares and you go to sell online, but the market makers are only offering you a price below the online bid, that trade won't be executed. So now you've got to make sure you hold above NMS just so that when, if you do want to sell and the price isn't the screen price online, then you can sell, which to me is silly, but that's how it is. <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, the interesting thing here, I think, is is actually the ease at, with which you can exit uh, mm. particular trades should there be some kind of some kind of company event that, that you know, sends investors rushing for the exit. Yeah. And, and how you manage that, I think that's, that's the important thing. Mm. Well, I think if you're holding more than the average daily volume of a stock and all of a sudden there's a liquidity event to the downside, so there's a profit warning, it's opening 20% down, you know that there's going to be people dialing up with the brokers to sell, pushing that price down as soon as that comes out. And if very often the market makers, they won't meet the bid online, so you just won't be able to sell. So, of course, if you're with an online execution broker, you've got to call them up, put your password in, actually get through to someone, they'll put you on hold to get to the dealing desk. Oh, the price has moved. Do you still want to do it at this price? Yes, please do it. Then I'll go walk back to the, the trading desk. And by the time you've actually got it done, the price has moved so much. Um, so that that is a real risk. And the market makers aren't actually obliged to honour the online price. But if you use a phone broker, they do. So it's worth having a phone broker because... I know that I can call my broker and instantly get out of a share within 30 seconds of me actually dialing. See, I, I think that's really interesting. We were talking about this earlier. And mm. The fact that you have two different brokers, depending on what you're trying to do. And, and you know, I instinctively would have thought the online execution-only broker would have been much more efficient, but uh, not the case, it seems. It depends what you're trying to do. So, for example, you've got IG, and their sets platform is very good, so you can have direct market access. And you can buy 10 grand a Greg's stock for a fiver, which is pretty cheap. So why would you pay 150 quid to do that if you can place the order directly onto the book yourself? So for things like that, it's very good. But if you're trading market maker stocks, then there's a very real risk that you can't get out at the price that you want to get out. So market market maker stocks would be generally at the smaller end of the market? Yeah, the smaller end. So typically AIM listed. And there's no, I mean, you have sets QX where you've got the auctions, but it's not really that great. And IG, it doesn't work. I've actually complained to them a couple of times, but <laughs> they haven't fixed it. I mean, I, I, I just think it's really interesting that, that you need the right tools for the job. And I think, I think that's, so. that's what this yeah. highlights here. The other thing you mentioned in the feature, which I, I was actually absolutely fascinated by, was this idea of psychological capital. Uh, so we, we're talking a lot about, about your actual money and how mm. you kind of protect that and grow that. Where does psychological capital, what is it and where does it come in? It tends to be the mindset. So, for example, if I've taken five losing trades, 
psychologically, I'm going to be quite risk averse in putting the next trade on, which you, you know, as it would have it, it's probably a really good trade. But if you trade five breakouts in a row and all five breakouts fail, all of a sudden you're thinking, well, maybe his breakouts don't work anymore, but it's five trades. If you're only right 50, 60% of the time, you're going to have five losing trades in a row. I mean, it's just an occupational hazard. It's part of the job. So you've got to protect yourself by not taking too much damage on every trade that grinds you down. So this is where the position sizing yeah, this comes is where Yeah, it protects your psychology and your physical capital because you've got to be able to take losses. And if you don't, then losers will eventually stop you from trading. Uh, there's a very good quote from Mark Minovini, very good trader, and he says, those who trade without stops eventually stop trading. And I think he's right. And this is something that was done in research. Uh, a traditional stop is better than just a buy and hold strategy. And it was only done on Swedish stocks in the top 30. So it's very hard to extrapolate that onto AIM, where the spreads are a lot wider and things are very different. But whether or not you're a trader or an investor, my personal opinion is that you should have an exit plan for that stock. Yeah. Because if you don't and something bad happens, not only do you then run the risk of playing your emotions, but all those flashing lights on the screen and the price action and what's going on, it puts you into a, a frenzied state and then you're not probably not going to make the, the most optimal decision. So, 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 so these tools, position sizing, stop mm. losses, essentially what they're doing is they're trying to take that sort of human element out of this as much as you possibly can. I, th- I think that's correct, John, yeah. The problem with trading and emotions is that there's a lot of discretion there. And if you put in a stop loss and you've got a plan for what you actually want to do, then as long as you do it, you know that it's the best plan because you've already done it outside of of the emotional environment. So there's a very good investor wheelie dealer. He makes all of his decisions outside of market hours, and then he writes it down, and then goes and does it the next just day. Executes and doesn't let, just doesn't executes. Doesn't let doesn't let what's happening. Never change places his plan. a trade in in. I mean, he's an investor, but he never places a trade in market hours because he knows of that bias. And I think I think that's a very good trick, something that he does really well. That is interesting. I do know of Wheelie Dealer, and he, yeah. he writes a good blog. Actually, he does. Yeah. He writes a very good blog. I mean, that, that, that leads me into something we, we again spoke about earlier. Now we, we talked a lot about trading here, mm. and obviously that's that's your sort of bread and butter. Yeah. But, you know, one of the questions we asked ourselves when we were reading this was, you know, does this stuff also apply to what you would call investors? You know, so so not not people taking very short-term positions in something, uh, you know, yeah, hours or days, uh, but people you know, holding for the long term. Do you do you need to apply similar rules around buying, you know, uh, position sizing and stop losses, even if you're investing over much longer periods of time? I think so, because you, if you have a really large position, you're taking on a really large portfolio risk. And eventually your portfolio becomes very correlated to that one position, especially if it just keeps growing and growing. Uh, and if it, positions can easily grow into 50, 60% of your portfolio if they're multi-bag, which many of them can. So there's always that risk. And with investing, a lot of people will say that they're investors and the fundamentals will deteriorate but because they're investors, they've, they've put themselves in that mindset. They might not only not sell, but they might throw good money after bad and buy more. 
I think, and I, think... I don't average down. I never average down because you never know how low that can, that share can go. Well, that, that, was, that would seem to be like deviating from a plan if you if you were to yeah average down because obviously the, you're reacting to the mm-hmm. to the events there in a way that you perhaps hadn't planned to do. You said something to me earlier that that actually you know a lot of people who would call themselves investors get hung up on particular stocks and essentially become traders in that stock. Yeah, I think so. Because if people were investors, they'd ideally buy and then not do anything for a couple of years. But we both know from Twitter that a lot of people are actively buying and selling every day. So they must be trading. And you see it sometimes that people can actually trade their favorite stock. And the danger of this, John, is when people buy their favorite stock and it goes down 20%, all of a sudden they don't want to sell it because it's a favorite stock. and they're holding an investing position, hoping for that stock to go up. So that trade is mentally rewired into an investment. And if it keeps falling, well, that trading account's just been blown. Yeah. So that is, that's the danger of trading your favourite stocks. You've got to compartmentalise it. The, the, the other thing you said to me was that uh, a lot of investors get bored. I think so, they do. I mean, it's so, so buy, buy and hold. You I, know. Mean, I, I get bored. Uh, Everyone gets bored. There's a, there's a famous fund manager who, who our listeners would have heard of, who, who pretty much everyone who's an investor would have heard of, Nick Train. And I think mm-hmm. he said something like, I haven't had a good idea for two years. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds quite boring. So I guess the temptation is that, you know, for a lot of investors who mm-hmm. call themselves buy and hold, is they just want to do something. Yeah. Well, if, if you look at a lot of the, the winners on him, I mean, there's a, there's a classic stock, uh, Alex Best Dynamics that nobody posts about on the bulletin boards. I know very few people on Twitter who own it, and it, it's just gone up and gone up for several years now. And that is a very boring stock, but for those who've been bored, they've, they've been rewarded for that boredom because it's just done fantastically well. And these are the stocks that are boring, that if you can find early on, can, can really make the money. Mm. That's something that I will get into, into the early bull market, but... I'm quite bearish at the moment. So yeah, not really investing. Yeah, this is. I was going to. I mean, one of the things I asked you earlier, uh, which I will repeat mm-hmm. now, is I, I said, you know, so are you, you you just a trader, or do you do you have a, a portfolio of longer term holdings as well? And and you said yeah. no, you didn't because because you're not very not very yeah. excited well, about the prospects of the future. I've got, I've got a couple of holdings. I would say medium term, but I wouldn't call myself an investor. I mean, that is not my strength. But price action and charts are. I might hold a position for a couple of months. So, for example, Greg's, I only sold that recently before the results because I didn't want to take overnight results risk. But I've held that for two months and it's been great. But I would call that a trade. It's not an investment. Um, when you're holding something for eight weeks, max, it can't be called an investment. Yeah. So, but you, but, I mean, the reason, one of the reasons you, you mentioned to me that, that you, you don't look hmm. much beyond that time frame is that, that you're actually quite bearish i am so, and talk us through what you think i mean I, I guess this is the big question what's going on in the markets why 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 are you bearish i just think at the moment the the charts and i stare through a lot of charts on weekends a couple of hundred every night because that's where i find my ideas uh, a filter for all-time highs 52 week highs volume as i said and if stocks aren't making new highs then they're either going sideways or they're going down so, I mean, it's, it's just simple uh, gravity. If they're not going up, they must be going down. So I'm, I'm quite bearish. And you look at the market leaders, like Fevertree, when that hit 40 quid, it's come right back down to 20, 21 so at talk, the moment. Talk us through what you mean by market leaders. So the market leaders are the stocks that set the pace of the market, really. So on, on the AIM market, you've got Fevertree, Burford, uh, Assos, 
boohoo, companies like that that have been big winners. And when you look at the in- index, a lot of that weighting is, is because of, of those shares. If you strip them out, I'm very certain the AIM index would be a lot worse than it already is because you've got so many companies that underachieve that are propped up by these market leaders. And I think when you see them start to come down, markets follow the leaders. They always do. Our market follows the US. And when this happens, when you've got the leaders dumping, the rest of the market follows. So unless we see stocks start to improve or we see new market leaders come through, I'm just quite bearish. And if we think in the last 10 years, has the economy done so well? Mm. Personally, I don't think so. I think I think a lot of a lot of the uh, the, the action's been propped up by uh, QE. by QE, yeah. loose monetary policy. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I guess the uh, you know the, the big question is how much longer can it continue? We see we saw a rate cut yesterday, so mm. I think uh, there is there is a recognition that the market needs some more uh, yeah. some more of a catalyst in that that vein. So uh, mm. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, when cash is my biggest position at the moment, and a lot of people say it's not making you any money. It's not. But it's not losing me any money. And if I see a trade, I'll take the trade, but I'm not going to invest. And this is something you and Phil discussed a couple of weeks ago, John, with quality. And can you actually find it at a good price? I don't, I don't think so. A lot of the, you've got a lot of slap bang average businesses, 20 times earnings. Yeah. That's crazy. And someone told me before in the in the dot com days after that you could find quality businesses single digit PEs. I mean, you you just don't find single digit PE businesses anymore, unless they're frauds. Or or uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there are there are business. I mean, value as a as a concept, mm. in, you know, it doesn't have many admirers at the moment. Yeah. I mean, that, that said, I mean Simon, Simon Thompson, who runs our bargain shares portfolio. I'm sure yeah. you, you know Simon. I do like Simon. He's made me a lot of money. Excellent. That's <laughs> good to hear. That's good to hear. I mean, it, it. Anyone who followed bargain shares this yeah. year uh, would have done very well so far. I think. Yeah, Simon, they would. Simon. Uh, uh, often sends me through his portfolio mm. uh, and uh, bargain shares is up 30.1% so he's doing fantastically year. well yeah a lot of that performance has been driven by one company uh, actually a lot of them have done well but mm. Futura Medical is just flying I uh... nearly bought that the other day as well <laughs> <laughs> missed my entry and then <laughs> typically it shoots up <laughs> but, then you, but then you didn't react after the event and you know kind of I, didn't, chase I didn't chase yeah exactly um Simon's performance, which is value based, mm. uh, you know, he's looking for companies where the market is mispricing them. You know, has beaten every small cap fund out there. It's absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. So it is possible to find it is possible good yeah. companies <laughs> attractively priced. It's just really mm. hard work, and I know how much effort Simon puts into this. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we would not disagree with you, Phil and I, that uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the attractively priced quality is, uh, is is hard to find. Mm. Um, I mean, something like Greg's, which you mentioned earlier. I mean, let's have a look at some of the companies that have reported this week, because mm-hmm. I know you've traded them. Yeah. Let's start with Greg's, because that is a quality business. It is. It's a very good business. Um, I, talk- I do like the products as well. <laughs> I love the steak and cheese rolls. Excellent. I like the vegan sausage roll. Yeah, that's which, been uh, a big winner. It has. Vegan products. It has. I think I think it's attracted a lot of attention to them mm. uh, and, and it kind of reminded people of what the company has become. Uh, I don't think the vegan sausage roll has necessarily moved the dial on the numbers in its own right, but it has reminded people that Greg's has undergone this quite significant transformation. But in terms of your approach to Greg's, I mean, as you say, you're not, not necessarily interested in the fundamentals. I'm not. So you've bought it and now you've sold it. But, you know, this business is, is still, there's some good solid momentum behind it still. I think you can still make money on Greg's from now. I don't hold a position now. But, I mean, those like for likes, 10.5%, that, that is huge. Mm. In a business that size, it, it's big. 
And what they're trying to do now is move stores where masses of people are, so where people work. And I think they could probably also challenge WH Smith in the travel sector, so airports, train stations. You don't, you don't see a lot of breaks like in that. train stations, actually. Oh, yeah. You don't, but I think they could do really well because WH Smith have really healthy margins. And I'm trying to think if there's any competitor to them in that sector at the moment. Because they, they've done really well from moving from the high street to the, the travel sector. But I think Greg's could, could have a go at that. Yeah. And they're trying to move to breakfast as well. It's, I mean, it's a wonderful looking chart. I mean, hmm? you're a chart, you're a chart guy, but look, yeah. at, I mean, look at that. I love it's, the charts yeah. that go up. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so you sold, because as you say, you, you didn't fancy the, uh, the overnight results risk. What, what got you into it? When did you, when did you buy into it? it? It was that trading statement, and I scalped it from the open, and I looked into it deeper, and right at the bottom, it said, we expect the results to be materially ahead of expectations. And those are the things that move and they can keep going. So in an efficient market, it would open and it wouldn't move, but the market isn't efficient. And what happens is you see these stocks with a head of expectations and they just carry on going. So it was a momentum trade for me based on the chart. I don't want to hold into the results because why take unnecessary risk? I'm a trader. I'm not an investor. So the goal of a trader is to get the risk right down in proportion to high reward and at that point before the results what what was the risk toward it was a very different trade from buying at the start of the move to at the end of the move and i couldn't have predicted that the share price would have gone down as it did but as it happens it did and that's what i want to protect against what what would make you buy back in if it broke out into a new all-time high yeah which is possible which is very possible i think it is possible i'll probably buy greg's again excellent um The other company that you mentioned to me that you were you were paying close attention to was yep. Burford. Now, this has been a, a, a private investor favourite. It has. Are you going to short it? I'm going to short it. Okay. If it breaks that level. What, what's, what's, what would be behind that? What, what tempts you to, to short uh, Burford? Well, if you look at the six-month chart, it put in a high, and it hasn't done that since. And we saw the results the other day. I thought they were very good results. But again, it's not my strength. What actually happened on the day, it, there's a stock opened up, and sold off in very big volume. Now, I'm pretty certain that's institutions selling because when you see a stock down on heavy volume, it's just a load of sellers. Now, do you want to fight that? I don't. Mm. So I'm going to look and wait for it to break that level. I think it's around 14.25, last previous low. It and looks, I'm going to short it down. Yeah, it looks about that. Looking at this very uh, undetailed chart we have, yeah. a tiny and undetailed chart mm. from which you can read not a lot. It's not a nice looking chart looking at that. It's not, but on the other side, I would have to, don't quote me on this, but I don't think... Well, you're on air, a, so you're being... Okay. <laughs> I personally don't think that is on a high ratings multiple. I would have to check, but it's not... No, 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 like it's not. 40, 30. I think it's relatively low, so who knows? Maybe it can go up, but... My job as a trader is really to react and not predict. So if Burford goes and makes a new high, I'll buy it. But if it breaks through that low, I'm going to short it. Yeah, and that's, so that's and, and and in your opinion, that's what's looking more likely. At, in my at opinion, moments. yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm sure there'll be lots of unhappy Burford shareholders. They will. To this. They will. <laughs> <laughs> Another company that you've uh, you've been looking at is Sports Direct. And I think this is more uh-huh. generally because it's a fantastically interesting story, as much as anything. It's a fantastically interesting story, and I'm going to short that too, hopefully. So, so this one is, it's kind of, I mean, on a year basis, that's down to pretty much as low as it's been. Maybe it's been a bit lower, but um, mm-hmm. what, I mean, what's your, what's your view on this company? Well, I read those results 
And I honestly thought this is something you get on a bulletin board. It's just a, a man having a rant at lots of different things. You're talking about Mike Ashley's uh, Mike statement. Ashley, Mike Ashley's statement. Now, first of all, he started off with uh, Debenhams. He had a go at them. And maybe it's justified because I personally don't think the board acted in the best interests of shareholders. But he had plenty of time to cut that trade. And that's shareholder cash just gone. Yeah. Gone in zero pence, gone. And everyone knew Debenhams was going to go bust. I gave a talk at the start of the year. I said it's probably going to go bust. Next month it did. He should have. He should have sold. Personally, I think he should have sold. Saved the cash. Next up, it was Game Digital. He wrote a huge long paragraph on this. To summarise it, he pretty much just said we think there's value in there. I'm not really so sure if there is, but we'll see. House of Fraser. The comment he used was when we looked on the bonnet we found things were worse than we thought. Well, it went bust for a reason. What what was he expecting? I really don't understand the, the rationale of this man. I mean, he's buying a, a lot of clapped-out retailers. I just can't see his angle. I really can't. Can you? I kind of sort of did... In the idea, the idea being that he could perhaps dominate the high street, dominate purchasing, and and, mm. and really capture an enormous proportion of, of of you know UK retail spending. But he has gone about it in a rather strange way. And 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 you know if we if we think about you know in terms of position sizing, <laughs> you should taken, read this article. It's taken some very large bets here that, as you say, have yeah. put shareholders' cash at risk. So, mm. so I'm not a massive fan at, uh, at the moment of of, of this of this strategy here. Uh, I'm not. And if you look at the chart, it's, it's clearly in a stage four. It's been downtrending. I mean, he's, he's either a very smart man who's trying to shake the share price down so he can buy it cheap. Take, take private. You take mean. a private, yeah. 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 Or he's lost his marbles. And I, I don't know which one that it is, but neither is, is great really, is it, for, for shareholders? And I, I just can't see why anyone looking at this business would, would come in and buy. But yeah, I mean, we, we talked here about sort of the fundamental case for not buying Sports Direct shares. Yeah, uh, but, but, we are. But obviously that's not the way you, you operate. So It's not, but it's how I sort of look for ideas as well. I want to know what the story and the angle is, because if you can find a company with deteriorating fundamentals or it's on a high earnings multiple, all you need is something to go wrong and a key level on the chart and then you've got a combination of the story the fundamental story and the chart which i think can be a lot stronger than just the chart itself um so for example stocks on that are constantly beating expectations you've got a very high chance that if you buy them on a breakout it's going to follow through Mm. because it is a good company whereas if you are buying a piece of trash on a breakout maybe not as strong I mean, you can get powerful moves on these things, but it's often the liquidity isn't really there and the, the story's not there as well. Yeah. It's that earnings growth that keeps people coming back, the, the upgrade cycles. So where do you, where do you go for your fundamental information? What, um, I use SharePad. You use SharePad as well? I use SharePad. It's a very good product. I use that for charting as well. I use that for charting. Yeah. They're going to love you. It's like a it's like yeah. ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, for, for fundamentals, what I do is I just look at the results and I look at the balance sheet, cash generation, income statement and just see what is actually going on because it's very easy for a company to have a lot of profit but there might be a lot of exceptionals in there which in reality it's actually not a highly profitable business as they make it seem Mm. so when i see adjusted i just assume that's a lie 
Yeah, talking of companies that have uh, sort of slightly manipulated profits, there has obviously been uh, a horrible trading update. There's been a number of horrible trading updates this week, but Aston Martin, Aston Martin, I think has been the worst of them. Yeah, <laughs> Is it, have you traded that? I haven't. I was looking to go short, and then it just gapped right through it. And uh, Phil, I should have pre IPO as well, Jim, last week. Yeah, um, should have got on it. But I mean, it's it's going to happen. There's, there's going to be plenty of other shorts with with private equity things like that. I think it's just best to avoid. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. think that the evidence would back that up. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you for uh, for chatting. Thank you for coming thank in. You Hopefully, you're going to be writing a bit more for us. There's actually, you've actually sent me something through already, haven't you? I have. Uh, which is a more detailed look at stop losses. It is. Uh, yeah. So we will be publishing that hopefully uh, in uh, in a few weeks' time. Mm. And as I say, you know, we write lots about the companies. We write lots about sort of a lot of the theories and the big picture stuff behind investing. But 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 I think there's a, there's a real absence of kind of practical information about actually how you go about the business of executing mm. your trades. And hopefully, you know, there's a lot more uh, that you can write about for us here. I hope so. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let me just talk you all through what else we've got. In the magazine, we have uh, Algae Hall's uh, stock screen. Um, we talked about not being able to find quality, but this is a, a high-quality small-cap screen, which has done rather well. A couple of companies mentioned there, Character Group and Billington, which uh, which uh, he's uh, looked in, in further detail at. We have dozens and dozens of results. It's that time of year. Pages and pages, which is always fun uh, when we're putting the magazine together. As well as Michael's feature, we have all the usual stuff in the um, personal finance and fun section and lots in the comment section, including uh, Simon updating on a number of his his, uh, his bargain shares holdings, as I've already mentioned, the performance of that portfolio. Fantastic that it is. Uh, and then, of course, we have the cover feature, which this week is looking at uh, what we've called mega funds um, and what we can learn from them. These are some of the biggest investors in the world, people like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. We're, we're looking at SoftBank, which is the big Japanese tech fund, and a couple of others. And uh, they're, they're really fascinating and, uh, and lots of lessons to be learned for investors there. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again, Michael, for coming on. Uh, and uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.